the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. Here we are again, live on August 12, 2018. I'm Martin Sorbetti with the Chalcedon Foundation, Vice President, and we're here again for Chalcedon Q&A and a little meat of the word. Uh, we always wait a moment or two for ground control to get us connected. Uh, I see that they're um, present and they will get us uh, lined up and broadcasting on chalcedon.edu. Some folks... Uh, don't have Facebook, and sometimes you wonder um, why more people don't because of some of the controversy there. Hi, Charles, good to have you. Uh, and or that alternatives haven't been uh, up and coming. So, but if you are in development, that's good news. So, as soon as ground control lets me know, we'll go ahead and hit the first questions. Remember, if you want to ask questions in advance, we'll get to those first on these Q and A's, the ones that are mailed into us. You simply mail your inquiry to ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. Leah McHenry, good to have you today. Oh, we have some interesting questions, by the way, that are um, probably going to uh, challenge some of us, including the person answering them. So we're going to see how they, they play out. And, uh, oh yes, Westminster, Colorado. That's good to have, too. Okay, we're ready to go. So here's the first question that uh, popped in about last uh, Tuesday or so. There were two questions from the same individual. A Christian friend of ours is studying at a local government university. The school requires her to do her work in a certain computer program which is provided by the school. Officially, the school is supposed to buy a new license for every student who uses the program. Our friend has found out that the schools do not do this, that it obtains the program and has had someone crack it so that the school would not have to buy the licenses. In other words, the school requires our friend to work with a program she knows is stolen. How would you recommend her, or what would you recommend her to do? This reminds me of uh, similar instances that uh, I've come across. Uh, my youngest brother, Klaus, uh, his pastor asked if he could uh, uh, borrow his copy of the software load disk for Aldis PageMaker, now Adobe PageMaker, now InDesign. Point is that it's an expensive program, and the pastor wanted to uh, be able to do his church newsletters, etc., on the cheap without paying for it. Just pirate the software. Uh, this so soured my uh, brother, who was responsible for making sure all the licenses at the business he ran were current, that he left the church over it. Uh, he did not think it was funny. He did not think this was being uh, wise for the Lord in any way, shape, or form. Uh, he regarded it as what it was, which was theft. Uh, and, and we see this all along the way, uh, and it's a troubling thing. Now, normally schools have what are known as educational licenses, but uh, and those tend to be even favorable pricing. For, so for them to still be um, hacking the program to force it to operate, even though it's not properly licensed, 
is indicative that they know that they are uh, theft. Now, there's something else you should know. When you install the software, you are assenting to the user license. And if you're violating the user license at that point, as the school is doing, evidently, uh, based on the report I have from the questioner, that means that the school administration, those folks, are covenant breakers. That's in the list of folks in uh, Romans 1 that are heading to hell, by the way. It is in the list between some pretty serious things, but in the mix of the murderers and the fornicators are the covenant breakers. So uh, to, to be so lighthearted about breaking the covenant and uh, believing it's uh, good business, it, it's not. Good business can be bad morality and what profiteth you if you lose your soul in the process. So... Uh, she can make a moral stand about that. She can either buy her own license if, she, if it bothers her, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, which would then shed a light on the school's failure to do so, or she can protest or report. Now, those options obviously might get her in trouble, because, uh, but she won't be suffering as an evildoer. She would be one who is a whistleblower. So uh, always a tough call. Um, but it's not, you cannot be in the middle of that and saying, I'm going to benefit from a theft. Uh, then once we yield to that principle, uh, then the school can turn around and next time around and says, well, you know, you were working with a piece of software that you weren't supposed to and you knew it. So you have nothing on us. In fact, we have something on you. Because uh, it doesn't take the school long to go ahead and correct the problem but point out that you failed. So the question now is it's a race to report. This is exactly what happened with the money changers at the temple. The authorities knew that the money changers were wrong and had to be uh, removed from the temple. Jesus simply beat them to it, and that's why they were so upset. They, they realized that they had to resolve this question, but they failed to do so. And so their anger with Jesus was that he got out ahead of them. And by the same token, we ought to get out ahead of sin and promote justice and righteousness in all our dealings, including our business dealings. Uh, and I'm very pleased to see that your friend <laughs> has the moral eyeballs to see what's going on, his clarity of vision. The second question, uh, in a very different area, could you please elaborate on how Leviticus 12 applies to us today? Now, Leviticus 12 involved what were the uh, uh, ceremonial uncleanness laws regarding childbirth. Certain things had uncleanness related to them and had nothing to do with immorality because, for example, leprosy in the next chapter has nothing to do with morality. It is um, a contagion of sorts. Uh, and as Rushdoney points out, childbirth leaves the woman liable to contagion. She's in a very um, more vulnerable state uh, as her body is going through the uh, postpartum motions of restoring itself back to normal function and lactation, things like this, versus uh, preparing for the birth. Uh, so for the, uh, because it involves things related to, to ceremonial uncleanliness, we do not have a temple of God per se, uh, where these things apply. That was uh, forever removed and destroyed in AD 70. Uh, we have a more sure temple, which is the, the house of the Lord itself, the living stones that we ourselves are all built of. So this particular principle does not survive as a legislation, but rather as a moral principle. Now, some people ask, why is it that there's a difference in the timing between uh, the boy and the girl? Uh, and Rashtuni is of the opinion that we are not aware why there's a difference in the body chemistry between the two situations, but there is, and therefore the uh, protection for the mother, the prolonged period of purification is doubled that. Uh, so you, she's unclean for 14 days rather than seven and has 66 days of purification before she enters the temple uh, as opposed to 33 days. But 
uh, as Hertz, Rabbi Hertz pointed out, it's not as if there's something intrinsically worse about having a, a woman child than a male child, uh, because the the uh, issue involves the exact same um, sacrifice to be offered. Whether Jesus, no, Jesus was born a male, obviously, but if uh, Mary and Joseph uh, had had a female child, which was not in the cards, but the um, the two turtle doves would have been the exact same thing. Which means the amount for access, even for a poor person, was not doubled. It was merely the amount of time uh, that one was away and with your child, if you will, raising her in this case. So this is indicative of a some level of where the law of God has a disparity between the male and female. Perhaps the more interesting one is uh, in the case of homosexuality, uh, Rashtuni notes, Bonson fought him on this, but Rashtuni uh, stood his ground on it, that the male homosexuality uh, as a capital offense, and assuming all the witnesses and everything are there, would in fact uh, involve a, a, a capital punishment. But uh, female homosexuality is ritual and cleanness and is not a capital offense. In other words, man is, God is holding men more responsible for homosexuality in the culture than the women. It's more or less that the, the women come along and are um, pulled into the train of what the men are initiating in the culture in terms of shifting the culture and moving it off the rock onto the sand. So there are some differences, uh, and they are indicative of where God holds certain things responsible. But in case of Leviticus 12, it does not have a direct application to anything today other than the principles that are involved. Um, that uh, there is no, and why should there be any uh, ceremonial uncleanness in the first place? As Rachel points out, we don't have a hope in generation. There, you know, we don't take the idea that the children of the heritage of the Lord and say, therefore, all children are fantastic and wonderful. No, uh, they're born sinners, right? We don't uh, create uh, sinless children from sinful parents. It doesn't happen. Uh, and we just create more sinners. But regenerations, rebirth, born again, that particular birth does bring something new to the table, a new heart of flesh versus the heart of stone that we're born with, unless you happen to be sanctified in the womb like Jeremiah, John the Baptist. I don't know too many people in that category. If you do, let us know. We would love to meet these people. They'd be quite interesting to talk to. But the likelihood is most folks uh, have gone the route that the vast majority have. All right, then the third question. People are either covenant keepers or covenant breakers. They are either in Christ or not so. Why do you suppose most professing Christians are content with the idea of partial faithfulness? Is it to give themselves a pass where they should get a fail? Or is it a means by which to help others along the journey to faithfulness? So it might be neither of those two options, by the way. There could be third, fourth, fifth option because we can't necessarily determine the motivation behind someone cutting himself slack or cutting someone else slack. But usually it's cutting oneself some slack. Uh, and that's why most people are more interested in calling out the sins of others than their own sins. Rush Dooney, I think, is singular in terms of uh, uh, a preacher of God's word, always drawing us back to correcting ourselves, reforming ourselves, as opposed to being busybodies reforming everyone else, like the Pharisees were. Pharisees were very concerned about someone else's sin, but not so much about their own, which they believed was a non-issue. Their sins were lovable and forgivable and understandable, but everyone else's were heinous and and, uh, and requiring immediate sharp rebuke. So we God does not grade on the curve, obviously. That much is, is clear from Scripture. Nonetheless, there's something to be said for what God is doing in our midst. Sanctification is a process. 
Just as 11 leavens hold three measures a meal in the process of converting the world, so the individual, the sanctification process is gradual. No one suddenly arrives all the way, even St. Paul says. Not as if I've arrived. Uh, he knows that he himself is still growing in grace and still being taught lessons he didn't think he needed, didn't even know existed. Uh, and yet there they were on the horizon of his experience popping at him, coming at him. Life hurtling toward him, life hurtling toward you and me. And so these are all occasions by which where we think we're in good shape, we're not. Job was in awfully good shape, so much so that God's bragging on him in uh, front of the sons of God up in heaven, to which Satan takes exception, saying, you know, hey, quid pro quo, you're scratching his back, he scratches yours. And finally, skin for skin, you know, all a man will, has, he'll give for his life. So why don't we try again? So as they're running the wager between God and Satan, then Job is put to a test he'd never expected on grounds that he were alien to him, where he had to learn something about the God to whom he served. Uh, he had the inklings of it because he would say things like, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But even Job had to go through a process uh, whereby he would learn more about the God to whom he served than he knew before. And it was and it, So what is this notion about um, partial faithfulness? Is it acceptable to be partially faithful? Uh, and the answer is, no, we should never... Um, what's the word we would call it, um, soft-sell the influence of sin. First off, not only its effect on us and on our future, because once you start down the road, it's easier to continue down that path. Uh, it's not as if you uh, can ride the tiger because that's a safe place to be on it, no. Or that you can control it because it's going to devour you. Uh, it's, lying, it's crouching at the door for you, as they say, so we must always be mindful of it. Uh, and we must always be uh, quick to apply First uh, John 1, 9, right, uh, to confess our sins, and God is faithful to uh, to forgive us from all unrighteousness. There's, there's provision for sanctification when it falls apart, but we should always point to the Lord and the holy example that he presents to us. Failure to do this is all of a sudden to wink at sin, sin uh, and it's to sanction it, in effect, especially if it's done by leaders. You know, ones that say, well, that doesn't apply to me. There is no respect to persons with God, no respect to persons whatsoever. And so, uh, and the other problem with when we uh, exhibit this attitude is it's contagious, it spreads to others. Um, the old saying is that morals are caught, not taught. This certainly applies in this area, too. People will draw more conclusions from your conduct and behavior and speech than they will from what you profess, because if your profession doesn't match your walk, then you're in the hypocrite camp, and uh, no one's going to be paying as much attention to you uh, unless they're putting together a hypocrites club, which some churches might end up being. Uh, whether it might help others along in the journey of the faithfulness, in a sense, uh, it, when we read that the Bible presents the saints with all their warts, with all the things that they did wrong, it, no, it lets us know that we are but dust, right? That we are fragile uh, and that uh, we are prone to sin. And therefore, at least it gives us hope. When if Paul's the chief of sinners and he gained acceptance with God, God could use him and his resources, then there's hope for us. So from one point of view, it therefore uh, does do that. However, a lot of it depends on the attitude of the person who has sinned, and you know, if he sins and gets away with it and smirks, I mean, is that going to be a good attitude, or is he going to sin and say, I should not have gotten away with it, I confess it, and I, and I regret doing it. Uh, but you can see I fell into this. Now, at that point, that individual, by drawing attention to what he did, like the Bible talk, draws attention to the sins, the warts of the saints, uh, lets us know we're not off the hook, 
uh, we may be in the same boat, but if he could be recovered, I can be recovered. So there's an essence of hope. Now, we're, right now we're operating several levels above scripture, obviously. We're simply saying there's psychological effects in the walk of, uh, of, the, of the saints. Virgil, good to have you here. And Charles White with us too. But uh, one thing we want to avoid, and we talked about this in the preceding uh, Q&A, was the notion that there's a such thing as the carnal Christian. I actually gave the wrong name of the person who wrote that. Uh, it was, I think, Ernest C. Reisinger, something like that, and I thought it was um, John, uh, the name will come to me in a moment, but nonetheless, I gave the wrong individual's name. And I will pull that from the shelf and, and provide that. I always say I'm going to provide it. This time I will make a point of digging it up and uh, getting that link to you folks. Emily Gunn, good to have you here. What are uh, professions or occupations you think Christian parents should be encouraging their children to pursue? Well, I believe that the preparation, and this is where it becomes interesting, Rush Dooney believed very firmly in the liberal arts curriculum, through arts school and into the collegiate levels the arts that lead to liberty. And in effect, that kind of left out the hard sciences and sometimes and the life sciences as well. And I believe that he did that strategically. He says, if we don't start at this kernel, we're going to have a hard time going uh, out and dealing with the other things if we don't have uh, our legs under us in terms of the, the social sciences, in terms of social theory. So uh, that meant that people were not necessarily heading off to get a PhD in physics. Uh, or becoming MDs, but we still need physicists and MDs. Uh, they were doing things that were more entrepreneurial, etc., uh, preparing themselves perhaps for their future generation than to enter the, into the hard sciences. Now, uh, from a tactical point of view, there probably is some wisdom in this. The downside is, I think, is a dangerous one, and it's this, is that people say, well, the Christians are very weak in the hard sciences, which means we shouldn't pay any attention to them when it comes to creationism, because they don't have the PhDs, they don't have the intellectual firepower, any dynamos that are worthy of the name. Um, they're the exception rather than the rule. And we should turn around and say, well, it actually should be the other way, that the best of everything ought to be a Christian. And it used to be the case that the Christians were the top physicists, the top doctors, the top biologists. Uh, we have a history heading back into the 1800s, 1700s, where there, was, uh, there wasn't this hostility between the hard sciences and the Christian faith. Rather, they worked hand in hand and mutually supported one another and extended one another. They were seen as an aspect of the dominion mandate. Now we're kind of back to square one due to the fact that there was a huge exodus. A, a, a sucking sun was the vacuum of all the Christians um, leaving all these fields to the humanists and forfeiting them all and letting the humanists gain things because we took a couple of hits and, and we were woozy and we weren't willing to go back in the fight, cowardice, and then we decided, well, maybe uh, we can justify cowardice and uh, dereliction of duty and saying, you know, there's no hope anyway, so we'll, 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 we'll retreat. We'll have a full-scale retreat from the hard sciences, etc. So my view is that the time should be coming soon, if it hasn't already, where we are preparing our children to move into the hard sciences and to take a biblical worldview and bringing it to bear there uh, faithfully and realizing that the fruit of that might be modest at first, but that's okay. They can be stepping stones to the next generation when the fruit will be more profound, meaningful, compelling, and culturally shaping. So that's where we need to go. So it's not as if I can point to any but thing and say, well, you need to, we need more Christians in air conditioning repair, or need more Christians who are doing insurance adjustment. Uh, that's not a, a cut and dried answer. 
we need Christians, however, to follow one basic rule, which is not where they're doing it, but how they're doing it. They need whatever soever your hand findeth to do, do it with all your might. You must provide your best effort. You must do everything as unto the Lord, and you must do nothing second rate. So that uh, you see a man diligent in his labors, he shall stand before kings. The Proverbs asserts this. So if we are working with our children and give them that mindset, then whatsoever they decide to do, say they would be willing to be a, a composer of music, then they would uh, put their hand to the wheel and they would uh, basically achieve beyond what anyone would expect because they are driven by the Spirit of God. They're, they're doing that because the, their heart is to take that area and bring it to submission to Christ. Every thought captured to the obedience of Christ. Bach did this, you know, uh, SDG, he wrote that across a lot of his manuscripts at the conclusion at the beginning, uh, to God alone be the glory, right? Uh, and uh, Lord Jesus helped me write this. And so everything he did was dedicated to God. So too we should dedicate everything we do, no matter how mundane. Remember there's no such thing as the mundane. That notion of mundane versus uh, spiritual is an untrue one. At the tail end of Zechariah, the 14th chapter, uh, everything becomes holy. Even the pots that are normally used just for eating, regular eating utensils are going to be holy. And then the uh, bells of the horses, the horses are an unclean beast of burden, uh, the bells are ornaments, merely ornaments on an unclean animal. It says, they shall have written on them, holiness unto the Lord, which is what was on the um, frontlets, uh, on the headpiece of the high priest of uh, Israel. Uh, holiness unto the Lord, everything is to become holy. So this distinction between the sacred and mundane is one that's being going to be blurred as the sacred continues to grow, as Christians become more serious about applying their faith. And whatsoever they put their hand to, it becomes consecrated to God's purposes and is uh, leavened by the power of the gospel. So I think it's more the question of preparing them to do whatever they do God's way, and then God will take care of the rest and sort out the, uh, the occupation or profession. But I personally would like to see more Christians heading into the hard sciences. Uh, not that we leave the li uh, uh, disciplines that lead to liberty, as Christian says, alone. We need to have that basis. If you're going to be a physicist, you better know uh, monetary policy and economics, too. <laughs> uh, we need to have that foundation, a strong foundation across Scripture, and then move into the areas where we can extend the faith, extend our knowledge, extend godly dominion, uh, so that these fields which now suffer from humanistic erosion uh, and uh, disjointedness, the disconnection of all things is taught by humanism because there's no unifying principle. Man's mind is supposed to create that artificial unification. But if all things were created by God, they're all God-interpreted facts, and then the Christian's job is to you know, think God's thoughts after him and to then to conflate everything uh, into its purpose for God's kingdom and then finds its full mission and its glory it becomes manifested that God intended for it. Everything was to be glorious. The whole world will be filled with the glory of the Lord, including in our occupations. Uh, this is the um, fifth question. One of the ways to marginalize people is to get others to laugh at them. Do you think satire is the proper tool of a Christian? Do we need to be careful in using this tool in our toolbox? So the reason that you would get someone to laugh is to discredit. It is a form of... Um, of course, it's also a dirty pool. They, they attempted to discredit Christ, you know, saying yeah, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Uh, it is a uh, ad hominem attack. So we're not really dealing with ideas anymore. We're trying to discredit someone. Uh, and if you can't discredit them, perhaps you can deplatform them. I actually spoke about this topic 
when I was piped into an event at Los Altos yesterday, deplatforming is also uh, a, a, a dirty trick to play in order to muzzle someone who you oppose. So sometimes it's also indicative, if you're going to attack the man, it means you're not capable of attacking the idea. Uh, and that is exactly what happened, of course, to the Pharisees. They could not confront Jesus. They kind of came to a point where they said that no man feared asking many more questions because the answers put them on the spot more than they expected each time because it cast them in a light. Jesus was a walking plumb line, as it were, a ruler, a straight measure of man, and standing next to everybody else made them look bad. And asking questions to him made you look bad when the answer popped back because you would not only get your answer, you'd get the extent to which you had failed to measure up to the very thing you were appealing against Christ for. So, uh, as to whether it should be a tool in your, our toolbox, uh, I do. I personally do not want to ridicule or uh, character assassinate or name call. Uh, there are those Christians who uh, think that polemics, the uh, um, idea, it's a collision of ideas. Uh, it is fair game to say, well, you're such and so, uh, and we use guilt by association. We use, in fact, a whole host of logical in, uh, fallacies. Uh, to argue ad hominem is inherently a logical fallacy, informal one, uh, but it is nonetheless a faulty form of argumentation. Why do people use it? Because it's effective. Because people were, will, were saying, well, you know, if, if the Pharisees say these bad things about Jesus, that he has a devil and he's demon-possessed, and, and they, uh, maybe it's true. So um, it's because, and, and what do we know today? We know that negative campaigning in a political uh, uh, season is more effective than positive exposition of what you're going to do. Uh, it's it's easier to malign someone and drag them down. And one of the most common ways is to say, uh, you are one of these. You are this. You are that. You you uh, have and so you name the uh, heresy du jour, and then you tie that chain your opponent to it by tying them together. Uh, it works for President Trump, and that does not reflect well on the people that uh, accept this form of argumentation because we really need to be working with the ideas and the concepts. Once we move to the personal domain, it, it means that uh, it's not the ideas uh, aren't going to be left in the lurch and they're never going to be heard on the merits. Uh, and, and this is a dangerous thing. Uh, and the other question is, to what extent is it possible that these, you end up going having a corrupt communication coming out of your mouth, something that's forbidden for a Christian? as Paul lays out. So if we're starting to move across that line, it's a concern. Uh, if we're simply saying, I'm laughing at all these people, yes, God obviously laughs at the wicked. There it is sitting there in Psalm 2. I'm not going to argue that God does not laugh. Uh, and he holds them in derision. But it seems to me that this is, tends to be more of a, a divine prerogative. Now, he does invite us to laugh with him at them, but who's them? It's the um, those who conspire against God himself and think they can overthrow God and overthrow the Son. They can set themselves when God sets his Son on his holy hill. Now we have a specific thing that's laughable uh, and that God invites his people to see the folly of opposing the living God because every breath that you take as an enemy of God, God gives you. <laughs> uh, every atom in your being exists because God sustains it by the word of his power. So to fight God doesn't make a lot of sense. It might seem very brave and courageous. There's a famous line in the, uh, the Cecil B. DeMille movie, The Ten Commandments, when uh, the, the captain of the guard, they see the sea split open and the pillar of fire, and he says, let's go from this place. Man cannot fight against the God. 
but they put in uh, Ramsey's mouth, Yul Brynner, the, the phrase, better to die in battle with a god than to live in shame. So he thought it would be shameful to back down even in face of God. And so most men also don't want to back down even if God's in front of them. And this too is folly and, uh, and, and a shame to us because it does not work, it does not end well. The notion that it will end well, that somehow I'm going to have my day in court, uh, every mouth will be silenced in front of the Lord. The whole earth will be quiet. It's laid out in Scripture. So, all that to say, uh, I'm not sure it even should be in your toolbox, but if it is in your toolbox, uh, use it sparingly. Use it, um, I, don't, I don't mind self-deprecating humor being part of you know the, the picture. Uh, I myself do that all the time. Or, or drawing a, a, uh, something in a friendly way, uh, as opposed to simply to vilify someone and to make them look as stupid as possible, and even asserting that they're stupid. Uh, we never reach the, uh, of course, if someone has a reason, they could actually explain, the reason that this is a stupid idea is such and so. But if you're going to go for the man, play the man instead of play the ball, you know, in soccer you're supposed to play the ball, not play the man. Same thing, you're supposed to play with the, work with the idea, work with the concept, attack the concept or criticize the concept or defend the concept. But you don't defend the concept by attacking its critics. You defend the concept by literally upholding it. Uh, and if you don't have the mental firepower to do that, all you can do is badmouth somebody. Is that proper polemics? Think about it. Warfield is considered probably one of the most gracious Christian gentlemen who ever walked the earth. And what was he head of at Princeton? Dogmatic and polemical studies, right? Systematic and polemical theology. Polemical theology. So how is it that he was able to criticize, and we have a whole volume of his writings, critical reviews by Warfield, where he criticized people who he was very much opposed to, but he did it in the most gracious way that people could then appreciate the arguments, and the arguments held sway versus, boy, did he nail that guy, versus, boy, did he make that argument sound. He, he demolished the other argument. That's fair to demolish an argument. It, is it a right to demolish a person and, and make that a substitute, a cheap substitute for demolishing an argument? I don't believe it has its part to play. Uh, you might get temporary quick inroads this way with people that have uh, ears and enjoy seeing someone being uh, owned, as they say, uh, or uh, otherwise demolished and, and, and crushed. Uh, this is the Facebook way to see someone being crushed in some kind of... But the proper way for a debate to be conducted uh, is like Dr. Bonson did when he went up against uh, Gordon Stein. Those are the ways to, uh, so that Christ is represented in that passage. Uh, Diana, thank you for that. And there's certainly uh, a, a, uh, more ways than one, but uh, any tolerance for incrementalism, given how we progressed in the, in the meantime, is certainly uh, a very problematic thing. Uh, let's see. Next, uh, two more questions. God created two genders, each for a particular kingdom role and function. Do we have any good theological explanation for why certain families do not have boys or do not have girls? Is there any useful, valid conclusion to be drawn? I'm going to use an interesting example for this one. I want you to consider Job, who had three sons at the outset. And he was doing pretty well. He was uh, even uh, sending up offerings for his sons. Perchance they might have sinned against God, and I'll provide a covering for them. So that was how prescient uh, and ahead of the game uh, Job was with respect to his sons. Uh, and of course, Charles Roberts is correcting us. God created two sexes, not genders. Again, I didn't say I agreed with the premise of the question as it was phrased, but here it is. Uh, 
I might want to, I don't want to get tied up in the, in the, um, that I want to deal with the situation with Job. Job had three sons. They had sheep and cattle and things like this, uh, and they looked to be doing pretty well, and they were destroyed. They were reported back, the messengers, three of them came back, lightning came, this came, the sheep were all destroyed, your family, including your sons and daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law and children, grandchildren are gone. And this, and then Job, of course, uh, re repents in sackcloth of ashes, and then gets the worst situation. We have uh, chapters and chapters of him having discussions with his buddies. His theological buddies, his Facebook buddies, uh, are having a great time with him. Uh, and what happens toward the end, uh, God speaks with Job, four times calls Job my servant, calls him to the three friends, says, ask my servant Job to pray for you and I will hear what my servant Job has to say because he's spoken right concerning me, unlike you guys. And how did then God bless Job? With three daughters. Now this is interesting. Apart from any other comment made, it said the latter end of Job was greater than the first part. So he was better off with three daughters than with the three sons. Now how is this possible given some of the ideas that are floating around there and yet scripture, the scripture cannot be broken. So I think oftentimes if we're going to get hung up on this, if you have godly daughters, and Job certainly did, and uh, they stood out in the land in fact, uh, then how is it that God would, think that would say that the latter end of Job was better than the first when he had three sons initially? So then to say, hey, how come I got cheated? I only have uh, daughters. Job, I don't think, felt cheated by having three daughters. He had the three sons, and now he ended up with three daughters. And it was a beautiful thing, and it's a thing where he gloried in it, uh, so, uh, it seems to me that we're picking sides and taking a divisive, hostile angle on much of this uh, gender discussion. Uh, and now, uh, I'm not going to go into the tr transgender issue. We certainly have enough articles and stuff uh, on, on this point, and I think the creation ordinances are very, very clear. But as to the question, why is it that God would uh, uh, give one family three sons or three daughters? I'm one of three brothers. Uh, one of my, uh, my, my wife's nephew has three daughters, <laughs> and I'm and uh, my, myself I started with uh, a daughter and then had three sons. So uh, some are mixed families, some are individual. Point is that God's going to use whatever, and He shapes the, the that because this is the world that He wants, and it's the best world. Because if you're faithful, then your children, regardless of uh, male or female, will be there to glorify God in every way they can. Let's see, there was, um, well, I still have another question, so I, I, I caught Doug's question there, but I'm going to deal with the last question uh, that was sent in in advance, and then we'll go ahead and deal with this. Okay, so what is the last question? What does it mean in our day that Satan is bound? There's still plenty of ugliness in the world, so how can he be bound? Uh, now, I take the position of, of Warfield, Milligan, Cleefoth, and Deusterdijk, and... Uh, scholars on that order and later on um, Bettner and Rashtuni adopted this position. Uh, early Rashtuni did not but later Rashtuni uh, agreed with the view is that the binding of Satan that's in Revelation is not the same thing that's described in the Gospels. If anything the thing that's described in the Gospels is closer to what occurs in Revelation 12 the casting of Satan down on the earth. Uh, so if we're talking about the Revelation passage uh, that has to do as an intermediate state picture. And so the, the binding of Satan is respect to a sphere, the sphere of those who've gone to be at home with the Lord, the intermediate state. The saints in heaven 
have Satan bound with respect to them. And, and, and essentially what happens, happens not to Satan, but to the saints. And this stone is happening to Satan, in other words, the abyss, the key, uh, locked away, uh, for the sake of the symbolic picture. The picture is depicting two time zones that, uh, that contrast our life on earth and our life in heaven. Life on earth is a little season, is depicted as such uh, in uh, Revelation 6.11 already, uh, where the, the saints in heaven under the altar, the souls of them uh, are told that they need to wait the little season while their uh, brethren run their race, run their, uh, fight the good fight and run the race as they were, as they fulfill their little season. They have to live their lives in the little season of time and trouble. And then they enter the thousand years. So when you're alive and breathing air, you're living in the little season of Satan. It's the period of time during which God is casting his fire down on the earth to destroy the wicked. It's the same throne as the throne vision of Daniel 7, where, God, where Daniel sees a stream of fire coming down from the throne of God onto the earth. It's what Paul means in didactic, clear language, not symbolic language, when he says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. It's being poured out upon all unrighteousness. I make a comment often from Second uh, uh, Chronicles, Second thirty-third verse chapter, where the phrase is, "Great is the uh, wrath of the Lord that is being poured out upon us." And the word in the Hebrew is, "Great is the glowing fire of the Lord that is being poured out upon us." Now, God's not pouring literal fire; it's His rage and His wrath against all sin. So, uh, the earth is being uh, poured out. Uh, God's wrath is is. Um, uh, uh, judgment against all righteousness is being poured out, symbolized by fire. This is also symbolized just as easily in Isaiah 4, where the, God sends a spirit of burning and of cleansing uh, upon the son, daughters of Zion, etc., etc. So these are all pictures that are consistent throughout Scripture. So when you die, you pass into the thousand years, and, no, now, and Satan is no longer a problem. Now, I have an example for this. If you look in the Old Testament, Satan was a problem for the saints in heaven. Uh, obviously, he was in heaven very much right off the bat in Job 1. There he is in, uh, with the other sons of, of God. And God says, what are you doing here? Where you been up to? He says, well, I've been walking on the breadth of the earth and across it. Uh, have you considered my... So here we have uh, Job criticizing, on the other, uh, Satan criticizing Job to God's face in heaven. Same thing happens in Zechariah 3, verse 1, where Joshua the high priest is wearing dirty garments, and there's Satan standing there in front of him to accuse him. And the son of uh, the, the, the angel of the Lord there to withstand him and say, The Lord rebuke thee. Jehovah says, Jehovah rebuke thee. Very fascinating passage where um, Jesus uh, takes the name of Jehovah and then says, But Jehovah rebuke thee. Uh, as same as in Jude 9. So the upshot is that there was a time when the saints in heaven were not free of Satan because he was wandering around up there. Now in Revelation 12, he's cast out of heaven very angry because now he only has a little season. The, the small, short, short season, he, he's limited to the earth. He's no longer allowed in heaven where the saints are now unattacked by any hostility. Uh, and that is exactly the sense in which Satan is bound. Satan is bound the second that you step into eternity. You no longer have to deal with him. But your children who still are here do. So what that means is that under uh, Warfield's view of postmillennialism, the church converts the entire, rather the gospel converts the entire world, the Holy Spirit converts the entire world despite the fact that Satan is unchained and has all his power. This, I think, answers better to the definition of victory than the conventional notion that Satan is bound, but the church will not complete the Great Commission because it'll, they'll, it'll, we'll have a great decline at the end and a huge apostasy, despite the fact that the church had this great advantage of having a bound devil. So with Warfield, we have a completely converted world despite the devil being unleashed. And with most contemporary post they teach 
devil is unleashed, but we won't finish the Great Commission. It'll never be complete. So which one answers to victory? Uh, Bettner and Warfield used to buy the conventional package. They shifted over in the uh, 80s and 90s over to Warfield's view, seeing that actually is what the Bible teaches, a complete victory. And it does, and God gains the victory in the face of Satan's full opposition on earth. So that's the sense in which we would take the binding of Satan to be true. Satan is bound with respect to the saints in heaven. It's a very dangerous thing. Most people don't recognize it. It's a very dangerous thing to say, well, Satan is bound so, so the gospel can go through unimpeded. Well, that means that the gospel it depends on a created element, that is, namely, Satan. So the determining factor of whether uh, the gospel is effective or not is in the created order, not in God, the uncreated, the, the, the original, the one who's all-powerful and, all, and sovereign. So the second we say that, we actually are become Arminian in our thinking. A Calvinist cannot consistently say that the gospel can, cannot proceed unless uh, Satan is bound. So remember, the gospel is termed in Romans 1.16, the power of God unto salvation. Does God need a little help? Well, you know, Satan is so powerful that he can stop God like this. So we have to tie Satan up and say, oh, stop. You know, you can't touch God's power because uh, if you're around, and uh, it could stop the power of God from being effective. That's nonsense. The uh, engine behind God, the salvation of the world is election, and God elects. And Jesus justifies, and the Holy Spirit um, sanctifies. And so what determines salvation? Not the creature. Not Satan. Satanology doesn't determine soteriology. I tell you what does. Pneumatology, the Holy Spirit, is to be poured out in all flesh, and the Holy Spirit's call is efficacious and irresistible. And there's nothing that Satan can do about it. So let's not go down and say, well, uh, so long as, as Satan is now bound, the gospel can, can go through, but once God releases Satan, boom, then the gospel's going on hard times, and no one's going to listen to the gospel anymore. Uh, that tells me a lot about the person's theology and very little about Satan other than that someone thinks he's more powerful than God. It's a very dangerous thing. Yeah, Bill, a good point. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, not by the binding of Satan. So, yeah, we are fighting an unleashed Satan here uh, insofar as his influence. Uh, but, but remember, he is a tool in God's tool chest. He, he serves a function. Uh, he's entirely derivative, and he also is dependent on God. So... Uh, he and, and so God's going to use him for his purposes. Remember, it says it as clear as day in Proverbs 16, verse 4, everything's created for a purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction. And that would include Satan for the day of the um, lake of fire for him. Okay. So let me wind back to see if there's, there were some questions that were being posed while I was talking. Your needles, Bill? I hope you're driving through and not staying any length of time. Ah, okay, then we got that. And Charles Robert made the very the point about the imprecise language about gender versus sexes. Very put good. On the topic of satire, Douglas Long says, is it effective to use satire on common Christian missteps to take away from the effectiveness of outside attacks on those same topics? Yeah, if we can defuse things. I think the the uh, the, the glory of the Babylon Bee is that it takes Christian foibles and exposes them for what they are. And we, now we end up laughing at ourselves, saying, sometimes you're laughing at someone else. I guess if you're Presbyterian, you'll laugh at their Baptist jokes. If you're a Baptist, you'll laugh at their Presbyterian jokes. Uh, but the point is, we're all in this together. And so, uh, it, and it is never mean-spirited, near as I can tell. It very rarely crosses the line. But it does show the foibles here. 
And occasionally we see some satire in scripture. In other words, there might be a part to play, a place for it, but it's not everywhere at all times that it, that it exists. It is, it is uh, something that needs to be prescribed because it tends to be acidic and vitriolic, uh, if not hemmed in. Yeah, because the water clay does not ask the potter, why have you made me thus? And I believe this is the question, why do I have uh, daughters instead of sons, or sons instead of daughters? Why do I have the mix that I have? Well, the revelation has been filled. Here's a good look to help you get started on the right understanding. I will... Uh, Look at it, but I can assure you that I have probably 30 books on my library that says the exact same thing, and there's nothing new under the sun. And uh, I would uh, very sh take sharp exemption uh, exception to these these uh, the idea. I am not a partial preterist, and certainly not a full preterist, and uh, I'm not a futurist. I'm not a historicist. I'm an idealist. And the, there is no way you can fit certain details in the Book of Revelation into either. The future war in, in, uh, alleged by premillennials, uh, or into the past, the Vespasianic war, the partial preterists. I've said on record that I am a sympathetic critic of partial preterism. I think it has a lot to say. I don't believe it, it can make the final 15% of the, of the victory lap, if you will, to say we've, we've, we've clinched it. I see so many profound issues with it, starting with Romans uh, Revelation 11, also with the handling of the 666. I have extreme exception to that uh, as well. I've documented these in the book review I did of uh, Dr. Gentry's book, The Beast of Revelation. And we'll take a good close look at his doctoral dissertation and his commentary on Revelation, which uh, is going to be coming out. I believe it's a two-volume monster. And again, what I agree that we need to have every position presented in its best possible case. We should have the best possible case made for partial preterism. We should have it for made for the historicist, for the idealist. Uh, for the amillennialist and the postmillennialists who are very, very close, except on certain details, uh, they need to work together to analyze these things and see: Am I being faithful to the scripture, or am I importing more than is legitimate into that scripture? These are legitimate discussions to have in a right spirit, and so there can be respectful discussion across these aisles. Um, but just to say, uh, uh, boom, it's a done deal. Uh, I was did my first lectures on the Book of Revelation in 1981, 82. Went through the entire book. Um, um, and most of these were recorded, it's the old cassette tapes, so I'm going to end up transcribing those. But it shows how long we've been manipulating these things and uh, uh, coming to grip with it verse by verse, and then going back to the Old Testament to, and also passages in the Pauline epistles and the Gospels to determine what the connections are. So uh, I do not believe that a facile two-sentence uh, thing that says uh, it's all been done and here's, here's the proof, that is not going to happen. It takes grappling, it takes study, it, you, it's going to be iron sharpening iron. iron. It, uh, there were several back and forths between myself and Dr. Gentry on a friendly basis where he drew attention to things that he saw, thought were flawed in my critique, and then I counter about uh, his back uh, to give the answers that he demanded of me. And so that's how it ought to play out. It ought to be a respectful exchange ideas, uh, and people who are observing that should learn something as a consequence. First, they should learn respect for the Word of God and to realize this is not going to be a walk in the park. The, law, the Word of God is uh, not going to be uh, crammed into any one box, um, uh, certainly not in a quick and dirty approach, and certainly not by casually dismissing all the other approaches. Uh, it's not that simple to... Uh, make a strong case, but it's important to make a strong case. So then you must invest the word. You must become a workman approved, not ashamed. 
So when you see an argument being raised uh, in favor, say, of partial preterism, you should recognize the strengths of the argument. Uh, it's very strong, for example, in some of the passages in Revelation 1. Uh, the, the notion of come uh, quickly the, uh, is something uh, does contain the notion of contemporary uh, action. Uh, but there are the possible areas where it does not do justice to the text, and that's where the weaknesses of the position come in. Every position has weaknesses, and we assume one of them is true, and we hope that we're on the right track. A lot of folks move around. Uh, Rush Dooney himself helped uh, fund some work done in partial preterism. This might surprise people because he's not a partial preterist, but he was supportive of the position um, because he said we need to have every plausible thing brought to bear on these things. We don't want to cut short discussion. We want to expand discussion and get the best sanctified, consecrated minds who are aware of the last 20 centuries of scholarship and bring that to bear and add something new to the mix if it's valid, and if we see deeper today than we do before. Okay. Oh, Warfield's eschatology, uh, you actually uh, can find, uh, it is, uh, he was what's known as an occasional theologian. So. He did not write a systematic discussion, so it's found in the Shorter Writings, Volume 1, edited by um, Meter, M-E-E-T-E-R. It's found in uh, Biblical Doctrines, which is part of the ten-volume set. Uh, one of those passages did make it into the five-volume Baker set, uh, called, and it uh, was the Prophecies of St. Paul. That is, but the one that didn't make it in was the Millennium and the Apocalypse, which does appear in the, um, the ten-volume set. Uh, also, if you're interested in this whole area, the Journal of Christian Reconstruction in 1998, 20 years ago, published the Symposium on Eschatology, and it had the largest article there called Reconstructing Postmillennialism, where I go into some detail on Warfield's eschatology and how it was recovered in the early 1980s and uh, came back to become a force to be reckoned with because the fact that it was unapologetically biblical and did not appeal to what was going around around us, but anchored itself to the Word of God, come uh, hell or high water, literally, um, um, it started to grow, and uh, more people are understanding that that is a legitimate way to look at Scripture, to look at the victory of Christ and how it plays out in the world that he created. Calcedon uh, Foundation asks, Martin, your talk was very well received yesterday in Los Altos. Well, I hope uh, that's good. Can you share more about the deplatforming you discussed and comment on the need for Christian reconstructions to create their own platforms? Uh, deplatforming... Uh, is a word that's relatively new, but it means that Alex Jones isn't going to be on uh, Google and uh, or YouTube and uh, Facebook anymore. You might still be able to tweet uh, how much uh, conspiracy theory you can get in 288 characters if they give them that many. But the upshot is deplatforming is a way to take away someone's soapbox and deny them a speech. It's a muzzling effect. It used to be called blackballing, and I pointed out that uh, Dr. Rashtuni himself was the object of um, massive uh, deplatforming by Christianity Today in the early 1960s. Uh, Terrell Elniff, as pointed out, uh, had written the cover article about the Puritans in America, a feature article for Christianity Today. And he included more than a dozen footnotes uh, that referenced the works by Dr. Rashtuni. And then he sent the thing off to be printed, and when it appeared in print, guess what? All of the footnotes with Rashtuni's name were removed, and the footnotes were renumbered. So that's what deplatforming is, when you want to pretend someone doesn't exist. You want to make them a nothing. You want to remove them from the universe. And so Dr. Rashtuni was effectively deplatformed. By the same token, publishers were deplatforming creationism in the early 1960s. It was Dr. Rashtuni who got the Genesis Flood published. Uh, 
um, by Presbyterian Reformed, even though the authors of the Genesis Flood, Whitcomb and Morris, were neither Presbyterian nor Reformed. And yet Dr. Estrin, he saw bigger than the picture. He told Mr. Craig, you know, this book is so important, you don't, don't look at that, the fact they're not Presbyterian, they're not Calvinist, look at the content of the book. The, the church needs to hear this. <coughs> so too, uh, we have this uh, happening time and time again, when uh, Christians are going to be deplatformed. We saw it when the Bible was removed from public schools, and, and now God's de being deplatformed. Uh, and therefore, what we do at Chalcedon is we're interested in replatforming the whole counsel of God, and specifically the whole counsel of God. As I always told, tell people, and you've heard me say it 100 times, or at least 45 times in these Q&As, I think it's our 45th Q&A today, uh, the reason that Paul can say that he is guiltless of the blood of all men is because he has not failed to proclaim unto them the whole counsel of God. He didn't um, go cherry-picking scriptures. He provided everything with the proper context. Uh, the rule that a text out of context is a pretext, he was aware of it. He made sure that people had the, all the context necessary. So, right, we need to be aware that um, God is not going to tolerate all deplatformings. The Word of God has gone into abeyance before. Remember, when Josiah, uh, under his reign, the priest Hilkiah pulled out of the wall of the temple, cracking the temple, hey, what's this scroll? It's the law of God. It had been gone all this time. You read it to the king Josiah. He tears his clothes. He realizes that the nations uh, has richly earned God's wrath, but his heart is tender before God. That was, a, unfortunately, a top-down reconstruction. That reconstruction, that reformation under Josiah, looked good on the surface. It was a great uh, plat um, Passover. Everyone threw their uh, strength into it, but because it was a popular king, the leader at the top was popular. Uh, everyone loved Josiah. And uh, so, but the actual people's hearts were not unchanged in effect. They followed him because he was Josiah, but not because their heart was in it because of God's sake. So they went through the motions. So and what happened now with the Word of God, the Law of God, the whole Council of God being recovered in our era by people like... Um, uh, Rashtuni and others of, because uh, he's only in the American voice, we have folks uh, on the, across the Atlantic who do independently bring the Word of God back up, the Law of God, into play. Some places have never left under the influence in Switzerland of V-Ray, for example. Uh, what's happening there is that the Reformation is not starting at the top. It's starting at the grassroots. It's starting with intelligent laymen. Remember, uh, Rashtuni uh, he ended up having to say, I'm not getting anywhere with academia. The seminaries, they're all deplatforming the Word of God, the whole council. They're not interested in it anymore. There rose a generation that knew not Machen, as it were. Uh, and so, too, in the, in the Reformed world, the seminaries decided they weren't that much interested. Uh, and uh, so they weren't publishing, and they weren't interested in the law of God. So Dr. Ashtuni went around the leadership of the institutional churches, to intelligent laymen, and that's where the seed was planted, and that's where the seed's growing now. And it promises to have a much more uh, a deeper root and a longer-lasting impact because it'll have a generational impact, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. If you raise your children and grandchildren into an appreciation and a love for the law of God and a delight for his ordinances and statutes, uh, that has legs, and that will have an effect on the generations to come. As long as we're willing to be a stepping stone to the next generation, in that way, we replatform the whole counsel of God uh, and the law of God, and he has a living voice in his defense in this diamond, diamond place. So that was the gist of what I was talking about uh, yesterday. Uh, oh, um, yeah, I could name some of them, but most of them are written by Gentry. We have uh, 
Of course, the oldest one would be Moses Stewart, and that's a two-volume commentary there. Um, yeah, the reason that the beast was not Nero is uh, I've actually documented that and published it way back in, was it 87, 89, whenever that book came out, that uh, Dr. Gentry. So the letters um, yeah, for Nero's name do not total 666, they total 676. Uh, it's because uh, you've left out the letter Yod, which counts for 10. Uh, so the spelling in 48 AD on the uh, Nabothian pi, uh, pylon in Hebron correctly spells it as 676, which means that Nero is not the beast. <clears throat> it's, a, uh, it's a forced fit. Uh, it requires a faulty spelling. And what happens, of course, is this is a big joke. Don't be picky about spellings. Well, that can fit, fit all sorts of people better, like Ronald Wilson Reagan, if I wanted to, uh, to fit 666 than I can Nero. And there are more issues even then with Nero. Um, uh, besides that, he was not killed by someone else. He committed suicide. All sorts of things that, that just don't fly. Uh, so I'm not going to go into an argument with that. If uh, necessary, I'll go ahead and publish the reviews because I don't want to reinvent the wheel. Um, so, okay, see, you have to take the time to investigate it. So I guess 35 years is not enough time to investigate the question. Uh, I like how, how long have you investigated that, Diana? I would like to know. I will just expand the discussion by, of course, if you took it uh, next um, week, if you wanted to do that, I suppose we could pull that that off. By the way, I, I spent a lot of time on a particular scroll where it's asserted that the Yoda is missing, and I point out that the scroll has a crack in it that goes right through the place where the Yoda would be, and it, the, the, that particular scroll, uh, which was allegedly proof for 666, is marred and defoliated, and the particular scribe who wrote it also tended to mortise his letter forms. So this is like a level of analysis that you need to put into this to say Nero is the beast. Okay, thank you for putting that up, ground control. Right. Uh, well, partial preterist, partial preterist is an interesting point. Uh, well, the point there is that we always, that even a partial preterist is likely, unless they're a full preterist, which we regard as a uh, uh, very dangerous position and not likely to be orthodox at all. I've yet to see anything uh, that comes close to orthodoxy because if you're saying no prophecy is yet to be full, uh, uh, remains unfulfilled, then of course the postmanism is off the table. It means we're not going to get anything better than the current um, situation that we have today. But the point is that uh, a partial preterist will then see the millennium as filling the future. I do not. The millennium is not a future time period at all. It is, in fact, the picture of the intermediate state, and it occurs over our heads where the saints who've uh, died and been to go with the Lord, and the church militant or, uh, is here living in the little season, and the uh, church triumphant lives in the thousand years. But for those who know, do what's called the Augustinian approach to Revelation 20, uh, they would say then that uh, it is a period of time on the earth. And it's a period of time on the earth which creates tremendous problems at its termination uh, if it's taken as chronological. It's chronological, particularly in the case of um, the... Um, premillennial views. That means that history ends with the great war uh, that is allegedly depicted 
in Revelation 20, 7 through 9. Now, there's no word there. Actually, it simply is a picture of what's expressed in Revelation 6, 11 and other passages where God's judgment is coming down continually. You're living in that period of time when the fire from God is pouring out on the earth and destroying all the wicked. But it's a slow process. Uh, and you experience it as a brief vapor. Your, your days are very short on the earth. You know, it's uh, three score and ten. And if by reason of strength they're longer, those the years are filled with weariness. I'm 61, so I have nine more good years to go, and then it's weariness, according to Psalm 90. So the upshot is, uh, at that point, then this wonderful promise that's laid out there in Isaiah 2, 4, that uh, there shall be no more war anymore, neither shall a man lift up sword against nations, nation shall not lift up sword against nations, neither shall they learn war evermore. How can you have a battle at the, at the end of history if peace is supposed to increase without end, as Isaiah 9-7 says, or that the abundance of peace shall endure until the moon be no more. Is the moon going to disappear in order for this revelation thing to happen uh, with a war at the tail end of history? So the idea that, that history ends with a war and a great apostasy is completely inconsistent with every other picture of the period of time during which the gospel, during which God's kingdom expands to fill the entire world. Uh, we have the Egyptian and the Assyrian coming into God's kingdom in Isaiah 19, verse 18 to 25, and then Israel's the third part. Uh, and God blesses all of them, and they are all coordinate together. Worst enemies of God come into God's kingdom first, kind of riffed on by Romans 11. And then Israel comes in, the final peace, and we have a worldwide salvation. So how is there room for some subsequent event where uh, the vast majority of people are now uh, attacking Jerusalem, allegedly? So for people who say, well, we believe the, the word of God as it literally says, I don't believe it for a moment. Because at that point, they're not taking Isaiah Two verse four seriously. Nation shall raise up sword against nation. They shall go up according to them. Their reading of Revelation twenty. This is the most uh, symbolic part of the most sim most symbolic books in all the scripture, and they're going to use that three verse to define and change all these other hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, even the statements that Jesus himself made, like in um, John twelve thirty two. And I, if I be lifted up out of the earth, shall draw all men unto myself. He meant it, uh, and he was lifted up out of the earth. He's ascended to the right hand of heaven. He shall draw all men unto himself. All living men shall come to the Lord. And it's through the power of the Holy Ghost, through the election, through the work that Christ did, that uh, he, the Spirit shall be poured out ultimately in all flesh. It's just a process. And when the process is completed, we move from an unleavened lump to a completely leavened lump. That's what the uh, post-millennial vision is. I don't like the word post-millennial any more than Warfield does because it assumes there's a millennium during which, and there's a before and after it. But he says that's a misunderstanding. The millennium is not a period of time. It's a state. It's the state of the intermediate saints, the saints who've gone to be with the Lord. Different thing entirely. Uh, Gary's done a very good job. Like I said, I'm a respectful critic uh, and sympathetic critic to um, partial preterism. Uh, I believe they can handle some of these crit uh, critiques that are raised. They're in a very good shape. And that's why our own organization has supported partial preterism, even though we are not. You know, so for for I don't understand why someone would um, uh, insist upon it stridently because that doesn't get us anywhere. Nor assume that someone has not obviously not studied or they would have absorbed it. In fact, I was a partial preterist for a while. I worked hand in shoulder with John Quaid Saunders, who was very much a strong partial preterist on Revelation. By the way, I'm a, par a partial preterist on the Olivet discourse more so than most. I believe that uh, Matthew 24 up to Matthew 25 verse 30 applies to the war um, within 40 years of Christ saying it. And we don't get to the end of the world proper until Matthew 25 31, which then coincides with the Revelation 2011, the white throne in heaven and all 
the nations gathered before it, and heaven and earth fleeted away, and no place is found for them. That's the end of the world. And that's where Matthew lines up with Revelation. So it's not that I'm not a partial preterist per se, I'm not a partial preterist with respect to the book of Revelation. Uh, I think there's adequate evidence that it was written in 95 or 96 AD. I've seen and I've read all the arguments that it's been written um, pre-Neuronic. Uh, and I have good friends who are uh, Facebook friends, theologians, who see it differently. But we argue respectfully. We don't believe that it's just a matter of snapping our fingers and you're wrong. We realize that the other guy has something to say for his position. I have something for him I say. We'll put it in the mix and God will help us sort out these things. Because God has given understanding for Christology back in 451 AD. The Council of Chalcedon resolved that. We resolved questions about Soteriology in the Reformation. But now we have eschatology will probably be one of the last things to be resolved as a locus of systematic theology. It's just the nature of the beast that it takes centuries to resolve these things, not a minute on Facebook. Like to David Trump. Mark once said, my father's optimistic about the future, not because we saw in man, like what he saw and saw in God, that's for sure. You know, nobody was more negative on sin than Warfield. Warfield would say, the, the world has always been a sinful place and it's Evil has gone up, reeking before God day after day. Uh, so no one was more optimistic about the power of the gospel than Warfield, but he was also very realistic about the power of the sin. But not so is the transgression, and so is the gift. You know, that's the point that's laid out in, in Romans that the the grace superabounds over uh, the evil and it overcomes it. Okay, does Bettner's book on postmillennialism, which is the millennium, the millennium or Rushdie's books take Warfield's view? Um, Bettner rewrote his book and republished it in 1984. Prior to that point, he did not believe in Warfield's view. Uh, in 84, he revised his book. So if you get the revised copy, you will get the, uh, a revised take with new appendices, and he pulled out information that was critical of Warfield and supplemented it. Rush Dooney's 1970 book, uh, Thy Kingdom Come, uh, was a conventional postmillennial book and therefore held to a final apostasy at the end and did not adopt Warfield. And he spoke with me about this and said, when I was a young man, I read Warfield and I was all gung-ho. I said, this is the way to go. But he was poo-pooed at the seminary he went, went to and all the other uh, reformed Christians were all, all millennial, almost to a man, uh, had no patience for Warfield. And uh, they do what everyone says is to do. It's such a strong protagonist, all you can do is ignore him. So they ignored Warfield. They didn't actually confront his argument. They ignored him or dismissed the argument. What D.A. Carson calls cavalier dismissal. A dangerous place to go. Sad, place, sad way to do your um, theological discussion is simply to dismiss something out of hand, but rather than grapple with it. More respectful to grapple, even if you lose. Even, you might be right and you lose, right? You might not be prepared for the argument, and you might even be on the, on the right side, but you might lose the argument but you might be biblically correct. So now you have to go back and shore up your position or, or learn or give it to someone else to fight for. Uh, so that's the point, is that Rush Dooney did not mention the view in 1970. But when he wrote a systematic theology, which appeared in 94, 95, boom, the world victory is more explicit there, and you can see the change in his position between his book on Revelation and then 24 years later when he wrote a systematic theology, then he speaks about the complete world victory. You see similar things in uh, John Owens when he talks about the complete conversion of the world. Uh, it's there in Scripture if one cares to look for it, and it's there a lot in Scripture. Uh, and it's there if you take the passages literally. So that is where the, the rub is. Now, I saw a comment from Ground Control that implied that we're running out of time. How are we doing on time, Ground Control? Because I have no idea what time it is.
Does anyone really care? I guess that's a song by Chicago. I'm dating myself. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to assume that we're out of time since we don't have any other questions. So, uh, we have an upcoming Book of the Month Club. Chris Zimmerman will be the hosting it and uh, be emceed by over pastime. Well, goodness, over six minutes. Off. If you, uh, it'll be on uh, this the Nature of the American System. Sign up for that Book of the Month Club if you, you are at all interested. It'll be a tremendous one. Send your questions in to ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. Pray for our ministry. Thank you for listening. Sorry we went over, but uh, sometimes I don't get to uh, see the, the, the feed as it's going up. God bless you all. Appreciate the questions. I'll double-check some of my partial preterist sources, but I bet you they say the same thing they said when I read them 35 years ago. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbredi. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.